If you're staying in the room with us, I I do want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word. Get your Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a phone. Your phone probably has a Bible. So uh, you can turn to your phone and find a Bible. And if you don't have your phone, then you have a neighbor. And your neighbor might have a Bible. And if they have one, then look off them. And if all else fails, we should have the scriptures on the screen behind me. But maybe not all of them because we're going to be looking at quite a few uh, verses of scripture this morning. Uh, We are in an Advent series where we are looking at some of the first people to hear the news that the Messiah was not just promised, but the Messiah was coming, that Jesus was going to be born. And we are looking at how they responded to that news. Last week, we looked at Mary and her response. She responded in a a marvelous way. She responded with faith and she responded with worship. And it was, it was uh, immediate, even though uh, the news from the angel was really difficult to believe. She, she believed and she praised the Lord. And we looked at the Magnificat last week. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Zechariah. Um, the Christmas season, just overall, it appears on the surface to be the simplest of all seasons in terms of how we relate to it and the expectations that we have for ourselves and that other people have for us. You're either one of two things. You're either Fred or you're his Uncle Scrooge. You're, you're either Cindy Lou Who or you're the Grinch. You're either Buddy the Elf or Buddy the Elf's dad, Walter. You know, one, one of the two. You can't be both. You are either one or the other. You're either happy around Christmas or you're grumpy around Christmas. So which is it? All right, show of hands. Ready? Happy? No, we're not going to do that. Um, we already know, okay? We don't need to, to see your hands. Um, but it's a little more complex than that, isn't it? Um, of course, as, as believers, we rejoice in the coming of our Savior, And beyond that, even just the lights and the music and the generosity that we experience, the giving of gifts, uh, they lift our hearts. It it makes us feel good. We're we're happy this time of year. But for some of us, Christmas is also full of sorrow, also full of sorrow. Christmas can remind us of brokenness in families. It can remind us of estranged relationships It can be that painfully fresh reminder of loneliness or loss. And Christmas can even tempt us to compare ourselves and compete with others, leading to intense discontentment this time of year. Christmas has the potential to be the time of year where we are spiritually renewed Maybe you take up the practice of devotions or, you know, uh, singing Christmas carols or Advent traditions, even just the songs we sang this morning. Did it not lift your heart in hope? But it could also be a time of year that reveals deep spiritual coldness in your heart. You see, that that dichotomy doesn't work. Um, we, We reject it, this false dichotomy presented to us this time of year that We can either be happy or we can be sorrowful. The truth is, we can and often are simultaneously, truly joyful and sorrowful. It it is possible, it is often the case, that we can be truly grateful in our hearts and content. And at the same time, we can grumble 
and be discontent. We can be faithful and we can be utter failures. Christmas seems really simple, but it's actually quite complex, even paradoxical at times. And embracing this reality can keep us from sinking into despair on the one hand, or it can keep us from glib sentimentalism on the other. This morning, we're going to learn about a man whose first Christmas, the very first Christmas for him, was full of complexity, full of paradoxes. You see, Zechariah was a well-known, well-respected temple priest in Israel. And he and his wife Elizabeth were described here at the beginning of Luke as righteous and blameless before God. Zechariah, we're going to see today, he experienced the power of God in a way that turned his world completely upside down. Zechariah was a deeply spiritual man who very quickly turned into a surprising skeptic and then descended into solemn silence only to then sing one of the most beautiful songs in all of Scripture, all because he heard the news that the Messiah was coming. So if your Christmas is complex this year and you need to know and you need to hear how Zechariah responded to this news that the Messiah has come. He responded in three ways. He responded with skepticism, he responded with silence, and he responded with song. If you have notes, uh, we'll, you have some headings there, we'll walk through those. If you don't have any, they're out in the lobby. You can pick them up at the end of the service. Uh, but most importantly, I want you in Luke 1. We're going to be looking at a number of passages today. But let's begin with Zechariah's skepticism. This is his first response. And here's how it went down. Uh, turn your attention to Luke 1, verse 8. Luke 1, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This was the greatest day in Zechariah's life. The greatest day in his life and the greatest day in his ministry as a priest. And that's true before the angel arrived. You see, Zechariah is one of thousands of temple priests in Israel. And given the sheer number of priests, this, this occasion, this, this act, this duty of offering incense in the temple, it would take place only once in a priest's life. And they, to determine who would go next, they cast lots. Um, and then they would offer incense with the burnt offering. According to the customs of the, the Mosaic law, the burnt offering was offered twice a day along with the incense, and the offering of incense was linked with corporate prayer. This is sort of like a worship service. You have a, a gathering of people. We were joking with those of us who were not in the equipping class. We were out in the lobby there, and the, the crowd of us sort of gathered, and I was like, this is sort of like the crowd that gathered outside as Zechariah was inside the temple, and we're like, what is taking so long in here? Now, I don't know if there was an angel in here or not, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't taking that long in the equipping class, but that's what it would have been like as, as he was there at the altar and he's burning this incense, a crowd of people gathered on the outside and it's their, their worship to the Lord. Uh, this is encouraging on the one hand because it proves the reality of ongoing worship in Israel. 
Um, Zechariah still has a role, a function as a priest. And it shows us that the people of Israel were still, at least some of them, still waiting for the fulfillment of all the promises that they find in the scriptures. So what happened next could not have been more fitting. Luke 1, 11. Look with me. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, next to the altar where the offering was made, the incense was burned, an angel of the Lord appeared before Zechariah and essentially in that moment answered all the prayers and all the longings and all of the hopes of everyone gathered to worship the Lord that day. All of of their their yearnings, all of their prayers are being answered, including uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a son. See, Elizabeth was barren. She didn't have any children. So all of that is being fulfilled. All of these prayers are being answered. The angel is essentially saying, Zechariah, the time of waiting is over. The time of fulfillment is here. Your prayer has been heard. How? Your barren wife will will bear a son. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn the people of Israel to the Lord, and he will prepare the way for the Lord. And Zechariah's head at this point must have been spinning. I mean, he had put all this focus and energy and attention into this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity he has to serve in the temple here in this way. And this message from Gabriel, the angel, it's all just so unbelievable. All of it. Could his barren wife really give birth to a son? Now, of course, Zechariah knew the stories. He knew the stories of barren women throughout his people's history who had given birth to sons for the purpose of God's promise. But are Zechariah and Elizabeth on the same plane as Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah? Could it be true that his son will be the forerunner to the Messiah? His son. Zechariah knew the prophecies well. His mind, I imagine, would have immediately jumped to the last verses in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He would have immediately thought back to that. But could this promised forerunner really be his own son? Could it be true that the day of the Messiah's arrival was coming in Zechariah's lifetime? Could the days of burnt offerings be coming to an end? Could the long-awaited and ultimate prophet, priest, and king be on the way? His head is spinning. Zechariah was too astute of a theologian, too righteous of a priest, to disregard or just disbelieve 
that such things can happen or even will happen. He knows better. He knew that God could give him a son. He knew that the forerunner to the Messiah would come, and he knew that the Messiah would soon follow. He actively believed each of these things, which makes his response to the angel's news really surprising. Luke 1.18, look at it. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It's such a reasonable question. But how can I know? What assurances can you give me? Can you give me a sign? Maybe a little bit of an ironic thing to ask an angel who's standing before you. Um, can you give me a, a sign? Something, I don't know if I can believe this or not. But, but it's, it's reasonable. That's probably the question I would ask. He says, I'm an old man. Side note, he's also a wise man because he didn't call his wife old. Did you notice that? Notice that? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years, you know, so there's some wisdom uh, in Zechariah there as well. Um, but but how, can, how can we know that what you say is true? Well, as reasonable and relatable as the question is, it's a question that's rooted in unbelief. Luke 1, 19 through 20. And the angel answered him. I, lo- I love this, by the way. So you ask this question that you think is completely inbounds, just, just totally reasonable. And the first thing the angel says back is, um, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. He says, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So if you were like, you know, oh, man, I totally understand that question. It's totally reasonable. I have a few doubts, you know. It's just innocent doubts. Now, this is unbelief. The angel says so. The angel's presence was not enough of a sign. A message from God himself wasn't assurance enough. Zechariah did not believe. He did not believe that he could have a son. He did not believe that the forerunner of the Messiah would be his son. He did not believe that the Messiah was soon coming. And it's startling. A couple, couple things we can, we can draw from Zechariah's unbelief. First, none of us, no one, is so faithful, so righteous, that we are immune from seasons and bouts with doubt and unbelief. No one is too righteous to struggle with unbelief. No one. If anyone was in a position to immediately believe the angel's message, it was Zechariah. There was no one more more suited for it. He was righteous. He was blameless. Luke tells us that. He faithfully walked with the Lord. He was a priest who knew the scriptures and the promises of God like the back of his hand. But when the rubber met the road and everything he believed would come to pass, was actually about to come to pass, Zechariah hesitated, struggled to believe. You can almost see see him wrestling with this in his mind. I know all of this stuff is supposed to happen. I know know it. I know it's going to happen. But this is crazy. This is crazy. It can't be. 
Now, I, I like to think that I have a firm and unwavering faith in the Lord. And I, I, do, do you think of yourself in that way? I just, I have unwa- just faith in the Lord. I trust the Lord. It's unwavering. It's firm. Um, but here's the humbling reality. If Zechariah can struggle with faith, then so can I. Doubt and unbelief can plague even the most faithful and righteous among us. Imagine, just for a second, imagine that an angel of the Lord visited us this morning. There's an angel of the Lord that appears, and we're afraid, we're terrified, just on our faces on the ground. He says, do not be afraid. And he tells us that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. It's a message from the Lord. What will we do with that? We know the scriptures. We know his promise to return. We know the glory that awaits us when he returns. But would we believe it? Or would we be like Zechariah and say, that sounds awesome, but hang on. We've been believing this is going to happen for a long time. How can we know for sure? Can you give us some assurances? We're addicted to certainty. Now that, that exercise um, may actually reveal a deeper issue in our hearts. If we'd struggle to believe in a scenario that Zechariah was in, then maybe we don't believe as much as we think we do right now. That was Zechariah's problem. That was his issue. The angel's message revealed an important divide between knowledge and faith. Knowledge, of course, is required of faith. We need to know these truths. But knowledge itself is not faith. Knowing is not believing. Knowledge, we might call it a rational category. Faith or trust, it's a relational category. And so we talk about the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. When we say knowing God, we're talking relationally. Zechariah had a relational problem, not a rational one. And that's why we admire Mary's faith so much. Because she was the exact opposite of Zechariah. What she lacked in knowledge and certainty, she possessed in this very simple relational trust in God. She believed the news of the angel, not because she reconciled it in her mind. Now, I'm struggling to believe how, how as a virgin, I could conceive and bear a son. Just give me a minute. Let me think about it. And she figured it out in her head. And she's like, okay, I got it. Just let it be as you say. No, she didn't get it. She wasn't able to wrap her mind around that mysterious and, and miraculous reality. But she trusted the voice of the one who said it would happen. That, that's why we admire it so much. Zechariah, on the other hand, he needed a further sign. Because he failed to simply trust the word of the Lord. He was unable to say like Mary did, let it be to me as you have said. This morning, you may believe or you may know that Jesus was born. You may know that he is God in the flesh. That he lived a sinless life. That he died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. That he was raised from the dead and that he is returning to renew all things. You may know all of that. But do you believe Do you know God relationally? Do you trust him? Have you yielded your life to him, fully submitted yourself to him? 
Because I can promise you, merely knowing the truth about Jesus will do you no good in the end. Faith in Jesus is the only way. Faith in him is the only way to, to get in on all the glorious benefits of his coming. So I would encourage you to use this Advent season to reflect on the true nature of your walk with God. Are you walking by faith? Or are you walking hesitantly with him, keeping him at a distance because you're just not certain enough yet? Do you know God relationally or do you just know truths about him? We learn from Zechariah's unbelief that certainty is not as important as we make it out to be, but faith is far more central than we may have otherwise thought. There's something else we, we can draw from Zechariah's unbelief, and it's very important for those of us who struggle with unbelief from time to time. Nothing can stop God's purposes from being fulfilled, not even unbelief. Nothing. You may feel like a total failure this Christmas. Christmas has a tendency to reveal that in us too. Your life may tell a story of unbelief. And maybe you feel guilty for not being intentional enough to point your family to Jesus. Maybe you're worried Christmas isn't going to be special this year because of me. Zechariah failed miserably through his unbelief. But I want you to notice that Gabriel doesn't reverse course whatsoever. He doesn't say, really? This is not how this was supposed to go. I'm supposed to tell you this awesome news and you're supposed to say, that's great, what do I do? Are you serious? You don't believe? Well, take a, few, take a few minutes, go home, talk it over with the wife, you know, wrestle in your mind about it, come back, because we can't get this thing started until you're on board. He doesn't, he doesn't say that, or he doesn't say, okay, fine, we're just going to have to find someone else. No. He's essentially saying, you're not on board with this? You're not on board? Well, figure it out, because it's happening. It's happening anyway. The Lord did not hit pause on his plan of salvation because Zechariah struggled with unbelief. Everything will be fulfilled in its time. The story of Zechariah shows us that God continues to do his good and gracious work even in the midst of our brokenness and our unbelief. Here's just one key example for you how this plays out practically for for your spiritual walk with the Lord. God has promised to never leave and to never forsake you. How often do you struggle to believe that? How often do you feel alone, abandoned? You feel like maybe God isn't on your side, that he isn't for you, and you struggle and you question? How often do you feel that way? Listen, whether you believe that promise or not, if you are found in Christ by simple faith in him, God will keep that promise. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. Even on the days that you don't believe that promise. Zechariah's somewhat stumbling faith is no hindrance whatsoever to God's power and neither is yours. Zechariah's skepticism. Um, 
So he moves from skepticism into about with silence. Um, his unbelief was met pretty immediately with judgment. Um, so let's, let's look at this. Look with me at Luke 1, 18 through 20 again. It says, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. Um, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And here's the judgment. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words. Okay, so because Zechariah struggled to believe the angel's message, he was struck mute for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He was silent. And, and I want you to think about how humiliating this would have been for someone like Zechariah. A respectable, articulate priest turns into this old man who is unable to speak at all, and he has to communicate through hand signals. How, how immediate, immediately just humiliating that would have been for him. And it was his fault. You know, he, he did this to himself. Now, this served a few purposes, this, this silence in Zechariah's life. First, it did serve as discipline for unbelief. We, we, don't, we don't need to miss this. Now, now, what I find really interesting about that is the angel's rebuke and, and judgment of Zechariah's doubts, um, it did not happen that way for Mary. And we don't have time to turn to it and look at it, but Mary doubted in a, a very similar way. Similar language is used. Zechariah says, how is this going to happen? How will this be? And Mary similarly says, hey, how, you know, how can it be? How, how can it be that, that a virgin can conceive and bear a son? And the angel Gabriel, same angel, just answers Mary's question. Well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And then when Zechariah asks a similar question, he says, you're not going to talk for nine months. You know? And it just, it, it seems just maybe a little preferential treatment maybe for the mother of, of Jesus. I don't know. Um, here, here's what we can see, though. There are, two, there are two ways of doubting. And you may have thought a lot about doubt. Maybe you've been guilted forever doubting God, and so you feel like, you know, oh, it's not safe to ask any questions whatsoever. If I have a question, I'm not a Christian, you know. Um, on the other hand, you may just be totally, <laughs> totally wild with your doubts, and you just feel like it's okay to doubt everything and anything at any time, and, and there's, there's no reeling in of it whatsoever. But there are two different ways to doubt. Mary's doubt is rooted in wonder, just curious. She wants to believe this. She's just curious. She's rationally uncertain. She's certainly confused. But she is, at the same time, still maintaining a relational trust in the source of that message. Doubting in a way that wants to believe is possible and it is welcomed by the Lord. Seeking clarity is not wrong. Asking questions is not wrong. It's welcomed. Zechariah's doubt is different. It is clearly rooted in a fear of uncertainty. He's losing control of his own life. He doesn't understand what's going on, and he's afraid. Doubting in a way that fears not being in control or idolizes being certain about everything, that is not welcomed by the Lord. This is a fresh reminder to those of us who 
really want to be certain about everything. It's a reminder that faith is required because certainty is not possible. You are not God. We are called to walk by faith, not by sight. Zechariah didn't experience joy at the same pace that Mary did because he was striving for certainty. So he's, he's, uh, his silence is a sign of discipline. But second, um, his silence is a sign that a work of God was at hand. So, so after he receives this news of, of being mute and the people recognize that he is, uh, look with me in verses 21 and 22, Luke 1. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Um, Zechariah's inability to speak served as a sign. And it's an interesting sign, too, a sign of the promise that after generations of silence from God, Salvation had finally come. You see, every morning, what was Zechariah wanting? Assurance. How can I know? Give me a sign. Well, he received one. Every morning that Zechariah woke up, unable to speak, was a reminder of the angel's presence and power. It was a reminder of the prophecy about his son John and Jesus It was a reminder that salvation was at hand, that heaven was about to collide with earth. It's a a negative miracle of sorts. You know, he's, he's not able to speak, but it's a reminder to the world that these events are not just coincidences. God is on the move in a new, fresh, powerful way to bring redemption, and it's a sign of that. Finally, um... Zechariah's silence served as nourishment for his soul. You see, his silence led him to the glorious, spirit-filled prophecy song that he sang at John's birth. You know, we, we think of Zechariah becoming mute as a judgment. Maybe it was less judgment, it was more loving discipline because as debilitating as it would have been, Zechariah's heart needed the silence and stillness that the angel inflicted. And we're told that Zechariah remained mute for the duration of the pregnancy. Throughout that time, he's able to witness the words of the angel coming true. He's able to witness just how wrong he was for forever doubting. And he isn't able to say anything about it. Think about that experience. Imagine the first moment that Elizabeth began to show. Zechariah's heart would have sunk in humility. It would have leapt for joy. But day after day, week after week, month after month, for nine months, he experiences the power and miracle of God, and he cannot talk about it. He can't teach about it. He can't preach about it. All he could do was contemplate. All he could do was sit in wonder, meditate in his heart, all that God was doing. There was no ability to rush to speak or speculate. He was forced to be silent and still before the inbreaking of God's glory on the earth. To not speak. To sit in silence before God 
to quiet the restlessness of the soul and the noise of the circumstances. It's exactly what our hearts need to. We need to learn the practice of silence. You see, we, we're com- Christians are complex as well. We need both community and solitude. We, we, we need groups of people in which we can wrestle through what we believe. And at the same time, we need times of stillness and silence before the Lord. Now, I have a very complicated relationship to silence. On the one hand, um, in a house full of, we could say, fun and energetic and, yes, loud uh, boys um, in our home, there's nothing I want more sometimes than just a little silence, just a little bit, every now and then. It's, it's nice. Uh, the, the, the boys here know we're practicing during Advent. What do we do whenever we light our candles? What do we do? We sit in, we sit in silence for a few seconds. We sit in silence. And we're trying it. We're, we're beefing up. We started at 10 seconds and we're at 15 now. So we'll see how far we get. Um, but that's, that's what we're practicing. And I love it. On the other hand, silence makes me really uncomfortable. You know, it's a welcome gift, but if you're sitting in silence, after a while, you, you just kind of get afraid of your own thoughts sometimes, and you just get a little uncomfortable. Now, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've, you know, sat down with my coffee, got everybody to school, and, and just, just me, you know, got my coffee, got my journal, got the scriptures, I'm ready to pray, and I'm, I'm feeling so spiritual in this moment. The next thing I do, I turn on a podcast. It's like, what? where did it go, you know? All of a sudden, I got just too uncomfortable in the silence. It's amazing the lengths that we will go. Can you be in a car by yourself and go anywhere without listening to music or a podcast or a book or anything? Call someone on the phone? Can't, we struggle with it. Now, why, why? Well, one answer is that our culture has shaped and trained us to depend on noise, Depend on noise. Don Whitney, he says in his, one of his books, one of the costs of the technological advancement is a greater temptation to avoid quietness. And he says we need to realize the addiction that we have to noise. Now, I struggle to imagine nine minutes of silence. Nine minutes. If you just clocked it and you just sat down by yourself and there were no noises, no phone, no phone calls, no text messages, nothing around you, just you in silence for nine minutes. You and your thoughts, you and the Lord, how long would it take for you to get restless? It's tough. Nine hours, imagine. Nine days. Zechariah had nine months. He is forced to do what we should all do a lot more frequently. Be still and know that I am God. David Mathis um, has written a lot about spiritual disciplines um, or what he calls the habits of grace. And he talks about the spiritual significance of silence like this. He says, the point of practicing silence as a spiritual discipline is not so that we can hear God's audible voice. It's so we can be less distracted and better hear him speak with even greater clarity in his word. Getting away, quiet and alone, is no special grace on its own, Mathis says. But the goal is to create a context for enhancing our hearing from God in his word and responding back to him in prayer. 
Silence and solitude, then, are not direct means of grace in themselves, but they can grease the skids, like caffeine, sleep, exercise, and singing, for more direct encounters with God in his word and prayer. It was in his silence that Zechariah learned to sing. He moves from skepticism to song in part due to this long season of silence and stillness before the face of God. So I'll challenge you during this Advent season, easy prompt, spend some time alone with God and just be quiet. You know, maybe instead of filling your drive to school or work with noise, just take time to be silent and still in rebellion against your own restlessness. Before you check your email, your phone in the morning, before you listen to music or start a podcast, just be quiet with God. Have an awareness of his awesome presence with you. Read scripture, pray, recall a truth or promise from his word. Small habits like this teach our hearts to take a posture of humility and submission and dependence on God. This is why I believe in liturgy so much. I know the call to worship just feels like the first thing we do in our service. Do you know why it's the first thing we do in our service? Because we're not talking. We begin our worship as a church in silence. God speaks and we listen and then we respond. This is the posture our hearts should always take. Sometimes the most transformative thing that we can do is nothing. Nothing. Just turn the noise down a little bit. Silence. Finally, Zechariah sings a song. Um, This is the climax of his paradoxical response. He knew the promises of God. He failed to believe. Now we see that he was silent before the Lord and full of song. His his prophetic song we find in Luke 1, 67. uh, We're going to look at verses 68 through 79. Um, and this song has three verses. And I want to I just look at these really quickly, and then we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper after that and maybe spend a couple minutes ourselves in silence. Um, but the song, the song begins like this. It begins with this recognition. After nine months of silence, he bursts out at the birth of his son, John, John is born, they're at this naming ceremony, and, and they ask him what he, the, the child's name would be. It's, it's, it's strange that the son would not be named after the father, but by the word of the angel, Elizabeth, and then confirmed by Zechariah, they name him John, and then his tongue is loosed, and he sings. Verse 1 of his song, What God Has Done. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah blesses God because in sending the Messiah, he's done two things. You see, the skepticism is gone. He totally and utterly believes that all of these ancient promises are coming to pass. First, God has visited his people. God's people, they anticipated a visitation from the Lord for generations. And Zechariah sees that the time of visitation is now. Our hope for salvation, 
Our hope for a world of endless joy is not found in us finally figuring out how to get to God. It is found in the fact that God himself has visited us. We can face every dreary day, every hard, painful day with hope because Jesus was born. In the birth of Jesus, God himself has come down to visit us. But he also sees that God in his coming, in the coming of the Messiah, he has redeemed his people. God didn't visit us because we were awesome and he had to get around us. God visited sinners. We're a sinful people. Our sin creates this guilt that is unavoidable and inescapable. We need a Messiah who doesn't just come to be awesome around us. We need a Messiah to come and rescue us. And Zechariah understood that John's birth was a sign that God had raised up. He calls a horn of salvation. It's a sign to us. The way that sirens of an ambulance or fire truck let us know that rescue is on the way. John's birth let God's people know that the rescuer was on the way. Verse 1, what God has done. There's a second verse, why God has done it. Look at verse 71 of Luke 1. He says, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He blesses God for his visitation, for his redemption, because he's done, done those two things for a few reasons. He did it to deliver us from our enemies. Jesus came as a conqueror, as a liberator, delivering us from the slavery of sin and death. He also came to remember his promises and covenant. God promised to save us, and he kept his promise that he made to David to the pro- and, and that was communicated through the prophets and the promise that he made to Abraham. All of it is coming to pass. And finally, he did all of that so that we might worship him. The Messiah has come. I want you to think about it in this way. The Messiah has come to recalibrate our hearts. Our hearts worship no matter what. You worship something. We all worship. In the coming of the Messiah, he has ordered our worship to the only one who is able to bear its weight, to the only one who is worthy of it. We can cast ourselves completely on him. We can be utterly captivated by him. It is not safe to be utterly captivated by another person. They will fail you. They will let you down. It is always safe to be completely and utterly captivated by God, to devote all our days to him. He will never let us down in that venture. And verse 3 of this song, finally, how he has done it. He sees, verse 76 through 79, it's almost as if he, he picks up His infant son, John, who will be John the Baptist. And he says, and you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist, he is sent as a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. I love how the Apostle John speaks of John the Baptist. Here's what he says. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The birth of John signaled light is coming. Life eternal is on the way. Rescue is near. Repent, turn, look for your Savior because he is coming for you. This is Zechariah's son's message. And finally, Jesus the Messiah. He will give himself as our salvation. In him we have forgiveness. In him we receive mercy and light and peace. The bottom line of Zechariah's song is this. Praise be to our God, for he has come to rescue sinners. Now, you don't have to have your life all together to receive all that God has promised in Christ. Have you thought about that? You can be an utter mess right now and receive all of the eternal and glorious promises, all of the benefits of Christ's coming, eternal blessing, eternal forgiveness, and eternal home with Jesus as your conquering king are guarantees for sinners just like us. So if you're in this room and you're a sinner, turn to Jesus because he has come for you. And the beauty of Zechariah's story, you don't have to be 100% certain about all of it. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be completely doubt-free throughout your Christian walk. You just have to trust that Jesus is the Messiah come from heaven to redeem you. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people.